Hello, I'm Patrick Hurd, Principal Consultant at Community Business Australia, and welcome to Seen and Heard, a podcast about communities and the events and issues that shape the people and organisation within those communities. Each month I'll be talking with industry leaders from a range of sectors and not-for-profit organisations, or as I prefer to call them, for-purpose organisations. We'll be talking about topical issues in a relaxed conversation style, so sit back and enjoy. My very special guest today is one of the country's leading communicators. Kevin Morland has demonstrated over his incredible career a passion and a commitment to meeting and exceeding the needs and expectations of his clients. Kevin was responsible for the establishment and successful operation over many years of Australia's largest independent marketing and communications agency. Kevin's career began at 15 years of age until his recent retirement at only age 55. I wish. In that time, he's gained vast expertise and experience on how to effectively communicate with key stakeholders, that is, your customer or your consumer. Kevin chose the title for this conversation, NFPs and Dirty Words. Hmm, curious. I'll let him explain his reasons for that title later in the podcast. During the podcast, I'll be delving into Kevin's background and asking him what attracted him to his career in communications. I shall be seeking his insight into the big trends for organisations that are marketing their services, particularly NFPs operating in a marketplace model and an increasingly competitive environment. So get your pens ready to note down some of Kevin's simple but effective tips for effective communications. Before we bring in Kevin, let's have a quick word about our podcast partner, Community Business Australia. CBA is a boutique consulting firm working exclusively with not-for-profit or as we like to call them, for-purpose providers, working in a range of social services sectors. Our clients operate in the aged care, disability, community, health and charitable sectors. All CBA consultants are expert in their chosen fields. They become a trusted advisor to the CEO and board. CBA helps organisations grow and CEOs meet their KPIs. Visit our new website at cbanow.com.au, follow us on social media and contact us directly via phone or email to see how CBA can assist your organisation. Now let's introduce Kevin. Welcome Kevin. G'day Pat, how are you? I'm well, thank you mate and thanks again for agreeing to be our guest on CBA's podcast Seen and Heard. Not many of our CBA clients might be familiar with you, so uh, can you give us a bit of an overview firstly of how you got into the communication and marketing agency business, then maybe um, a few examples of the impressive innovation and uh, some of the great work that you did in those those years running the agency as well, just to give us some context to begin our conversation. Sure. I probably started in advertising and communication um, in a way that is very unusual these days. Now, of course, the way into uh, marketing and communication and advertising is often through university. Yep. Um, but my approach was a little different. I essentially did what was an apprenticeship. Huh. And I say an apprenticeship because I started in a very junior position, actually, yep. you know, as mailboy. And in fact, um, that's how many people mm. um, way mm. back in the day mm. Mm. Um, started. Yeah, so I yeah. started in um, advertising in an agency um, at 15, running parcels around the city. And um, that gave a really great insight into um, the function of how agencies worked mm. and how advertising was produced, quite different back then to how it is now. And um, I made a decision quite early on that I wanted to um, have a career in this area and that was afforded to me and I think it's afforded to anybody who shows a degree of interest and 
aptitude. And you know, so I made it my business really to make a decision about what parts of advertising and uh, marketing I wanted to know more about and then just set about asking lots of questions and making sure that I communicated where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do with the people who could make a difference mm. and help me along that road. Uh, you know, eventually, after um, you know, a couple of decades, I found myself in a position where I was running an agency and um, I was very keen to make sure that I gave other people that kind of opportunity too mm. if they wanted it. The great thing about working in that particular field is that you learn a lot about other businesses and how they operate and you learn a lot about consumers and you learn about a lot about psychology and sociology and what actually drives people what motivates people to make the decisions they make Um, so all in all it was a very rewarding time Mm. yeah fantastic and let's go down to the the agency that you were running, as you say, a couple of decades, I'm sure there's a whole podcast just there, but a couple of decades time now, you find yourself running an agency and uh, give us a sense of what, what sort of time this is. Are we talking in the 90s by the time you were up, up and running? Yes, yeah, so late 90s, um, early 2000s yeah. and um, I guess the implication of that was you could say that, you know, agencies in a way hadn't changed that much because, in fact, media hadn't changed that much. You know, Mm. the mass media was television, it was radio, it was print. Mm. Um, And then, of course, around the mid-90s, we had this thing called the internet that came along. And really, that changed all our lives in so many different ways. With that disruption came the opportunity, I guess, to really embrace change. And I think that that's something that we were very keen to do. Mm. As an independent agency, fortunately, we didn't ever have to ask the permission of New York or... Yeah. Chicago or yeah. London yeah. or Tokyo, we could make decisions that we felt were in the best interests of the business. And that um, gave us a real competitive advantage because it meant that we could look quite objectively at uh, where we thought the communication landscape was, how it was changing, where it was going to, and uh, make decisions that um, affected our business for the better because we were very fleet of foot. Um, and the agency grew and, and blossomed, I think, partly as a result of really leaning into that change rather than being concerned about holding on to old ways. Yeah, it's a great point you make, Kevin, because just thinking about the, the organisations we work with, they're, they're modelled very much similar to what you've just said. They're independent, they're owned and operated by a community and they're not answerable to any head office or large organisations. So they've got the ability to be embracing change, like you say, and they don't always do that, but they've got the ability to do that. That's why I think your story has got a lot of parallels to some of the clients we work with. I think that um, this opportunity to, uh, comes with independence is a real competitive advantage Yes, and it should be harnessed. So if you don't have layers and layers of bureaucracy you have to deal with, which actually often slows down process, slows down the opportunity for innovation, slows down the opportunity to be first to market, you should really embrace that. Mm. Um, you know, mm. Again, lean into it and mm. it will pay dividends. Mm. So what are some of the uh, examples? Um, you mentioned um, the internet and the social media and sort of leaning into that opportunity. So what sort of things did the agency look at in those times? Well, if I think about the advent uh, around about sort of 15 years ago um, of social media. So things like Facebook, they're about 15 years old. I recall when we determined and decided that we were going to actually hire a social media director 
<laughs> um, which now is commonplace. Right, everyone's but, got one. But absolutely. But 15 years ago, I remember we sent out a press release about this and, you know, we were lambasted in the trade press about, you know, what the, what's that person going to do and what do you need that for and yeah. there's no opportunity to monetize, um, you know, social media. What a waste of time. Mm. But in fact, it proved to be, you know, a, a very good idea. Sure. Because just as uh, organisations are, are still grappling with how they best harness digital. Let me tell you, 15 years ago, the question was even a bigger one with um, very little experience. So being able to offer you know, that as part of um, our, our range of services proved to be um, very worthwhile. Another example is having a look at what I call technology blending, which is taking existing technologies and thinking about how we can build on those. For example, there, there might be a need to... Um, to uh, have uh, tours of, say, university campuses, for example, mm-hmm. um, the opportunity to take something like that and, and think about it fairly in a fairly kind of analogue sense might be to say, let's produce a map. But actually, if you start to think about this more laterally, you can say, well, what's the opportunity for virtual reality? And I remember saying, in fact, to QUT as a university of technology that as a brand they should be introducing technological innovation in their yeah. communication yeah. and of course they embraced it they were a wonderful client i have to say so these sorts of opportunities by just um, again being independent by keeping your ear very much to the ground in terms mm-hmm. of what's going on globally mm-hmm. and thinking about how you can apply that to your business or your client's business is 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 is, is a, has, has enormous potential yeah yeah Kevin, the, the title we talked about for our conversation um, is interesting. I think it needs a bit more elaboration. Uh, you, you mentioned it's NFP and dirty words. So can you elaborate what, what you mean by dirty words for NFPs? Well, I've worked with a lot of NFPs, um, you know, across the disability sector, um, across aged care, um, across um, health promotion, across community safety and so on. Yes. And... Very often when you start to talk about branding or marketing, they get really concerned. They glaze over? <laughs> well, not so much they glaze over, but they get concerned that maybe this is an exercise in style over substance. Ah, right. And I yes. think that the fact is that it's very important to reframe what we're actually talking yes. about. Let's talk about a term like branding, for example, which very often in NFPs, you know, it's a it's a no-go zone. We yes. don't want to talk about branding. We're, we're not that kind of organisation. Yeah. We're not about spin. But I think if you understand a bit more about what branding really is mm. and how it's defined, there's an opportunity to reframe why it's valuable. Okay. So what's the definition of branding? The idea that branding is really an idea mm-hmm. or a notion that exists in the minds of consumers. If you take that as a definition, Mm -hmm. then isn't it really important that you have some headspace, that you have some, that your audience has some perception of what you're about? So, for example, if I said to you, Pat, can you name me the quintessential Australian airline? Sure, Qantas. Qantas. And if I said, and can you name me a low cost carrier in Australia? Virgin. Okay, so they have and occupy a space in your mind. Yes. It's exactly the same for not-for-profit. So if I said to you, in, the, in a time of really um, a real emotional uh, distress, where could Australians uh, turn to? Who could they call? Salvos. What, 
salvos. So again, they occupy a space. That's really all branding is about. It's just about making sure you articulate with clarity what you stand for so that when people need to access you, they can. Mm -hmm. I think with NFPs, if this idea of branding is framed in those terms, then suddenly it becomes of much more value and it's much less about kind of some sinister hidden persuader um, (laughs) trying to um, uh, position and, um, and, and, and grab your hard earned. Uh, so I think that's the important thing. So I think for NFPs, it's really important that that is understood. It's also really important that there is internal marketing, internal communication mm. about why yeah. we need to go out to the market, yeah. why we need to communicate effectively. And there's lots of good reasons for that. It's interesting to me that um, if we fundraise, it's just framed as fundraising, but in fact... It's marketing. Definitely. If we would like people to consider us at the time of writing their will, we need to effectively communicate, dare I say, market up to them so they understand what value we bring to the community that we serve. So once you start to think about marketing and its need in in that realm, things start to, to change a little bit. I think it's also very important for NFPs who increasingly are operating in deregulated markets Um, Aged care and, of course, disability Mm. services are two that come to mind immediately. If they're in competitive environments, they've got to actually have a compelling promise. Yes. And that's all about business sustainability. So it's not about spin. It's far from it. It's actually about really defining what you do and then making sure that you tell really compelling stories um, that are persuasive and and, and that serve the audience well. Well... It just comes to mind working with those sectors, as you you highlighted, aged care and disability. What's happened over you know, generations, because they've been funded in a block sense by government authorities for decades, they take a sense where we get funding, we deliver services. And so that model of operating becomes their default but of course now with the significant reforms that have happened in those sectors, you've outlined aged care disability, the government has in some ways forced uh, a complete rethink of that model to now a more marketplace model. So they have to operate more like a normal environment, which mm. is most businesses operate. But it's a significant transition. And so they're grappling with many of those questions and those issues you just outlined. I think it is a significant challenge and I think it's also exacerbated by the fact that very often if you look at the people who are attracted to these sectors, they are people with big hearts sure. and they're people who are very interested in making sure that every dollar spent goes to the consumer, goes to the program, yes. goes to making sure that the service delivery is the best it can be. Yes. In every organisation, no matter how big, there is scarcity of resource. Mm. So I think that... Uh, very often there are these debates about, but if we spend it here, we're not going to be able to deliver over here. But the truth is that if uh, you have a strategic marketing and communications plan, the opportunity for growth and the opportunity for sustainability is even greater. I think it's also important to make sure that you have a profile when it comes to all sorts of stakeholders, not just the obvious ones. I mean, certainly there's staff, certainly there is you know, the, the audience that you serve. But there are also many very influential stakeholders that need to understand what your organisation is about, whether that be community leaders, uh, whether that be government, whether it be the bureaucracy. 
all of those people are impacted by an effective marketing and communications plan as well. And when it comes time for them to make decisions which could have a material impact on your organisation, they will be led by what they know and understand about your organisation. Yep, absolutely. Kevin, um, we're on the, hopefully, the tail of a significant worldwide transformation in terms of the, um, the COVID-19 health pandemic from 2020. We're moving into really the impacts economically now that we're facing right around the world. So I appreciate you're now someone in retirement and I know you keep a keen interest in, in a whole range of matters, but I'm interested in knowing what, what you're seeing as some of the emerging trends maybe, the, you know, the bigger trends around um, branding, marketing and, and how we communicate in the future. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to see what's happened over the last 12 months and just Interesting, your thoughts. Well, I think, Pat, it's a really big question and I don't know that anybody has the absolute answers yet. But I will say this, marketing doesn't exist in a vacuum. Marketing is really very much a response to economic conditions and confidence. Yes. And confidence is actually an emotional response to what's going on in the world. It's really an emotional response. So if you think about it in those terms, then I think that the pandemic will have quite a profound and lasting effect. And I say that because what's happened as a result of the pandemic, even though different territories, different markets have actually had different experiences, nonetheless, we're all global citizens and we all yeah. are exposed to the 24-hour news cycle. Yes. Uh, so we understand very well what's going on globally, whether or not sitting in Brisbane it's affected us in quite the same way as Melbourne or um, you know, New York or anywhere else. But I think that what has happened is firstly there's been really significant ramping up of technological capability of organisations. So people are working differently and what people are finding in working differently is that uh, many of them have a preference for working that way. So I think employers may have on occasion been really concerned about how productive will people be. Um, So there's this real-time experiment that's gone on (laughs) and people have proven to be very productive, but they're working much more on their terms. And when you look at the social research that's out just at the moment, what we're seeing is that many people don't want to to go back to such a rigid way of working. That's the first thing. So their their work is changing. The second thing that's happening is that their home is changing. And the reason their home is changing is because suddenly they have to actually have a look at well, what, how's, my home, how's my house structured? Mm. And where is my house located? Um, you know, there's been a surge, for example, as I understand it, in inquiry uh, for properties two hours from the major CBDs. Yep. Two hours from the major CBDs. And that's because people are imagining a life in the future where they'll commute on some days, maybe not during peak hour. Mm. On, on other days, they may well work from home. And if they do work from home, what does home look like? So from a marketing perspective and from a social perspective, this has really significant implications. First of all, we're hurting, we're hurting animals, right? Mm. So if you look at the current social research on what people miss about working, um, going into an office every day, 60% of people say they miss the collegiate nature yeah. of, the, of the workplace, Interestingly, that's about the same percentage as extrovert to introvert (laughs) in the world. Um, But 60% say that. So if they're not getting it in the workplace, they will look for it elsewhere. They will look for it within the community closer to home. Yes. So 
that's a significant change that we're about to see. So I think I think the social connection that people crave and need yeah. um, will happen closer to home if work happens uh, closer to home. I think the second significant thing about um, this uh, pandemic-induced change is probably linked to uh, the way organisations may choose to operate. Yes. I think that they would do very well to think through in both a macro and a micro sense the opportunity that this change actually brings for themselves and the opportunity to better serve their customers. So if you you start to consider the daily journey of your customer base, of your consumers, of the people you serve, and you start to think about what happens if they're interacting with technology in a different way, what happens if they're keen to be part of a community in a different way? They're just two examples. Then what opportunity do we have as an organisation to play a role in facilitating that, to making it more meaningful? You know, if I was consulting, I would be saying, let's actually take a micro look at our audience base and let's see what opportunity this social change is going to provide our organisation, both from our staff's point of view but also, very importantly, from our audience's point of view. Let's take that um, a step further then in the, to the NFP world where a lot of NFP leaders will, will look at that and say, well, we're in a people business. You mm. know, we deliver to people and, and we're supporting people who are vulnerable. We're supporting people who are in need and so forth. That they'll be very quick to try to get back to the way we used to do things because we're comfortable with that space. It's worked well for them in the past. But just hearing what you said then, I agree. It's a perfect opportunity to re-examine that. Would you agree? Is there examples Absolutely. you could give us in terms of... Well, I think NFP organisations. I think just look for a moment. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that when it comes to NFPs, by and large, almost exclusively, they're in the people business. Yep. It's human services. But you know, it's interesting that um, if you have a look at the take up of telehealth, yeah, as a result of the pandemic, largely when we talk about medicine provision, we're talking about the people business. I think that if you have a look at NFPs who are dealing with uh, people's mental health. Yes. Um, there is, uh, you know, there are some increasing concerns about um, increasing anxiety, for example, brought about by the pandemic. There's a pandemic of loneliness. Yes, these are really obvious areas. Yes, um, but I think that the more you understand about what you truly deliver as an organisation to your customer or consumer base, the more the opportunity exists to start to uncover where new opportunities lie. And I think there are many and varied ones. The idea that we're a people business, so what does it have to do with us and how quickly can we get back? I just don't think that you you really have to follow the social and consumer trends, not wish that they would actually uh, oh. yeah, t- 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 turn <laughs> back right. around and, uh, yeah. and behave oh, yeah. as you as, as you yeah. would like them to behave. Yeah, um, The opportunity for change again comes yeah. through. One of our um, earlier guests on, the, on our podcast was... Um, Karen Walsh, who's a CEO of a, of a well-known um, community provider here, and they run a service which comes to mind, which is um, called Street to Home, where they actually take mobile service vans out to those people that are living rough or you know, homeless, and and they basically take professional nurses and, and, and the like and triage people on the spot, and fantastic service that's well well regarded well received but you can imagine a rethink of that service for example and how technology could be used to more embrace that in terms of you probably 
rather than those people going to emergency, which they're trying to avoid, you could probably have a you know a mobile connection. And, and there's a whole range of opportunities there that you could see to better and more efficiently service those people that we're supporting. Absolutely, yeah. I think that you know it, it's it's also true that um, big audacious problems that seemed insurmountable suddenly didn't become such as a result of the pandemic you know suddenly there was no homelessness in melbourne yeah (laughs) um so the opportunity to reimagine and reconfigure um is there and i think as i say this has been a really interesting experiment in many respects i mean it's it's you know out of you know bad comes good sometimes Mm. um and so things that um, we didn't think we could do that would be too hard suddenly we were able to solve those problems. Yeah. That's a really important lesson to remember. It's a really important context when you are framing up solutions to stakeholders and to influential decision makers that, well, we didn't think it was possible a year ago, but, hey, we managed to do it. Kevin, um, in, our, in our preparation for our conversation, I heard you mention a term which I, I think I'd like you to explain further in, in, the, in the context of NFP world and, and supporting them. And you mentioned it's important to understand the four Ps. Now, in, in my career, I've heard a lot about the three Ps, which, which is a successful business needs the three Ps, which is position, position, position. But what, what's, the, what's the four Ps in, in your space? You'll be happy to know that one of the four Ps is actually position. Okay, good. So there you go. <laughs> Um, but really, the four P's is a well-established uh, marketing framework, really. And it yep. just suggests that marketing is looked through um, different prisms. Um, and the four P's, so you've got position, you've got price, you've got product, um, and you've got the people. Right. Um, so they're really the four P's. And it's a matter of when you start to contemplate marketing strategy that you look through that prism and you say, well, how well do we perform um, ah, in a competitive right. context, yep. how well, you know, how compelling is our offer really? And then developing strategies that, um, that properly deal with each of those. So is our product competitive? Is it priced well? Particularly, again, in the, in the case of um, not-for-profits where most of the service delivery is so heavily dependent upon people. Yes. It's very important that those people are well-trained, that they have bought into the the promise that they speak with a consistent voice about the organisation and that they deliver. And then, of course, when we talk about position, um, position, of course, is physical location. That's uh, less meaningful, perhaps, than it once was because of um, digital uh, possibilities. But position is also about, again, it comes back a bit to this branding idea, What's what, what position do I hold in people's mm. minds? Mm. What's the, um, you know, what's their, what, what, what's their, their, their one-sentence summary of what we actually deliver yes. and is that positive. Um, and that's, a, that's an area where, where I think that it's very important that organisations, all organisations, for-profit, not-for-profit organisations, articulate that and share it and share it and share it mm. and keep sharing it because if you don't know what you are internally, don't expect anybody to know what you are externally. Correct. Yeah. So the importance of the internal and the external marketing, I absolutely agree. Kevin, earlier you mentioned about um, uh, in, in the agency that you're running, you're really a sort of a, a market leader in, in the social media space. I think you mentioned uh, uh, you appointed a director of, of social media way back, um, back in the 90s. So um, for, for my clients in that NFP space, it's a perplexing issue and I'm really interested in your thoughts around the use 
or not of 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 social media to communicate with their stakeholders. Okay, well, I think that firstly, it's worth just contemplating for a moment why why be involved with any media channel. Yep, and really, um, it comes back to following where the eyeballs are. <laughs> okay. okay, so if you follow the eyeballs, the eyeballs increasingly are online. Yes. So every week we spend about forty hours of our time online. Yep. And one in every three minutes is spent on a social media platform. That's where people are going to get information. That's where people are going to check on what their friends and family are doing. That's where people are sharing what they care about. Now, you can take the point of view, well, you know, when it comes to being on social media, there are lots of risks. Um, you can say that, um, you know, what if, what, if, what if people don't speak very kindly yep. um, That's about one of the issues. us? Yep. That's a big issue. Yep. And look, I've sat in front of federal government ministers who've made similar noises, but here's the truth. They've always been talking about you, either positively or negatively, based on their experiences. So they've, they've been speaking about you anyway. The second thing to say is that, don't think for one moment because you don't give them an avenue with your channel that there aren't lots of other digital channels yes. where they can speak either well or ill of you. There are Google reviews. Yep. There's change.org. There's the ability to actually advocate and agitate by creating your own Facebook group if you feel strongly enough about yes. something. Yep. People do have avenues to speak well or not so well of you. So that's not a reason not to do it. Um, the other thing is that if they wish to reach out to you, and tell you about a problem they're having, that should be perceived as an opportunity to get things right yes. rather than you know, a, a public scolding. So I think that it, it's better that you know that you, than that you don't know. Yes. So I think that's another reason. But also I think that when it comes to social media, NFPs have almost an unfair advantage. I'll tell you why. How so? I think they have an unfair advantage because... When you actually look at the psychology of sharing and liking, this is actually all about self-expression. This is all about what this says about me as a person, what my values are. Mm-hmm. Okay, So when it comes to messages um, that may be shared on social media about, for example, the Red Cross, when I like that, when I share that, that, that that's because it reflects my values. What yes. they're doing, what they're yep. talking about yep. um, reflects I my values. Do the same. It's yep. much more difficult to get that from a commercial organisation. And that's why many commercial organisations actually get involved with corporate and social responsibility initiatives. Mm. Sometimes it's because they actually have to find a way to be relevant and to connect. Mm. And so I think that the emotional stories that are there... For, for, from NFPs are, are there to um, really enhance the social media experience if they're done well. So I think that on balance, you, you have to say you have to be there. 80% of Australians have a, a Facebook account. They're, they're spending lots of, lots of time on that and other platforms. I mean, new platforms like TikTok are emerging. You know, they've got almost a billion users worldwide now. Yeah. So, you know, you, you need to be there. I think the other thing about being that it's really important people understand um, about social media is setting up a community and thinking tick job done is selling yourself and your organisation a bit short. And the reason I say that is because there's a thing um, with these platforms that some 
people listening to this may be aware of, called organic reach versus um, versus what happens when you do promoted posts. Now, organic reach works like this. If you've got, say, a community of 10,000 people, then when you put up a post that you don't pay for, it will reach probably around 5% of your community. Mm-hmm. So 95% of your community won't see it. Mm-hmm. And the 5% who do see it will be the most engaged 5%. That's how the algorithm works. Yes. So guess who's likely to see it? Your staff. Correct. Now, when you see stuff on social media, you might think everybody else is seeing it, but that's not actually the case. So the, what you have to understand about social media is that it's not free. It's not a free platform. Um, you've got to be prepared to invest in promoting, and that's their business model. Um, you know, it's the reason why Facebook made $30 billion last year. But you've got to be prepared to invest uh, some money, not a lot of money, hundreds of dollars, not thousands, in making sure your post gets out to uh, your audience. That's really important. Yeah, there, there are many more pros than there are cons to um, the use of social for NFPs. And, and just a final question on social media. For NFPs, um, I'm getting a sense that it should be it should be a strategy as part of an overall communication marketing strategy. So it's sort of part of it or it's a key component, but it should be part of the broader strategy. Is that Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a subset in the yes. same way that a crisis management plan is a subset of your, yep. your, your communications plan. Yes. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a subset. It's part of very often um, your digital uh, marketing strategy because, of course, one very important part of your digital marketing strategy is your virtual shop front, which is yes. your website itself. And, you know, what does that look like? What does that communicate about your organisation? When was the last time it was updated? You know, what's it communicating and, and telling people um, who may know very little, who are exploring you for the first time? Yeah, yeah. As I mentioned to um, you and as many of our listeners know, we, we work a lot in the rural and regional space in Australia and we travel around a lot and, and, and hopefully borders will remain that way that we can still do that. And, and you know, we work with aged care, disability, health and community providers. Um, what What... In your view, uh, a lot of these organisations run by a board and a senior executive. What are some of the, the the key matters that should or are keeping them up at night, do you think, in terms of how they communicate with their constituents, their consumers in the future? Well, I think there's a, a few things. I think that, firstly, as we've said, NFPs are in the people business and they're very reliant upon people to deliver services, whether they be paid uh, workers or whether they be volunteers. They represent you and they represent your brand. I think it's very important to have good governance and good systems and processes in place to make sure that they represent, represent your brand in the right way, that they don't go rogue. And when I say rogue, I mean they may be very well-intentioned, but um, completely off target, completely off brief. So I think that making sure that uh, your people are well informed and that um, expectations um, when it comes to interfacing with with public and other stakeholders is a really important consideration. Because really that goes to reputation management and issues management. So I, I guess understanding and having plans for crisis management and crisis communication um, when things go wrong, you are dealing with people. You know, my old business partner uh, started Angel Flight um, oh, in right. Australia. Okay. And, um, you know, you've got a bunch of pilots who are doing wonderful work, but they're in aircraft and with aviation comes 
comes a certain risk. Having appropriate crisis management and communication plans to make sure that it's properly dealt with in a timely way is really important. In aged care, you're dealing with people's loved ones. And so sometimes there can be a misunderstanding. Sometimes there is actually a need to call organisations to account. What does that mean? What does it mean when there are uh, macro issues that ultimately trickle down? So if you have um, an aged care royal commission, you can't say, well, look, as an organisation, we're doing all the right things, so we're immune from that, because that may well be true, but it's whether or not uh, somebody who, who, who takes issue decides that they want to you know, put under a microscope a particular issue and how are you going to deal with that. So there are, there are, there are, I think there are crisis management and crisis communication planning that's, that that, that organisation should, um, should consider. Kevin, um, just on that, just reminds me of, of something that I've seen a lot in the last 12 months where, and I'll use the aged care as an example, but it could be in disability as well, but, but the aged care example where you know, you've got this external health pandemic that then motivates governments to act in terms of policy positions and, and the like, which then leads to a complete shutdown and a, and a, and a significant imposition onto that provider. And I saw a whole range of solutions to how to deal with that. So what it said to me is we weren't ready for that, firstly, and we just responded on the run, secondly. And some did it really well, and others were in the media a lot because they didn't do it really well, as as we all saw. It it seemed to me there were some really big lessons out of of that planning that you just said, that you you as uh, leaders have got to be prepared for some of these scenarios that potentially can happen. You're absolutely right. It comes back to planning. Um, in the same way that we can look at where we are in the life cycle of this pandemic and we can say, you know what, there are emerging opportunities. Equally, when we see things that are going on that may not be to our liking, um, you know, if I'm an aged care provider and I believe I'm doing all the right things, then an aged care royal commission is a major disruption. However, there are opportunities and there's the opportunity to start to, if you're close to the sector, which clearly you will be if you operate in it, to start to say, well, what is likely to come out of this? And what could that mean for us in terms of regulation? And what's our opportunity to influence that? What's our opportunity to respond to it? So I think that if you go back with the benefit of hindsight and you say, okay, in March or April of 2020, the government's getting very serious about the fact that we're about to close the country down. Mm. What does that actually mean for me and my organisation? And how are we um, anticipating the sorts of things that that, that that will result in? And what are we doing about it to, to mitigate the, the risk and take advantage of the opportunities? I think that's the, the thing. It's really all about planning. Excellent. Kevin... Um Time just flies and uh, we're going to wrap up. But uh, before we do, um, what what are some of your big takeaways, you think, for NFP providers? Well, look, I think that um, once upon a time when it came to making business decisions, we had history and we had intuition. Yep. And we had to make the best decisions we could. We couldn't always go out to the market. But things have changed because with digital, the opportunity to test, measure and learn exists like never before. Yep. 
So very often, rather than sitting around a table for hours debating endlessly whether decision A or decision B or decision C or decision D is the best decision, the opportunity is to test it with small samples digitally and get some real-time intelligence back to inform the decision. So I'd say that that's a real opportunity and that's never been really possible in the way it is now. The second thing I would say is be audience-centric. Always think about the audience. For a moment, dispense with the operational considerations, dispense with the human resource implications, dispense with all of those things because if you're audience-centric, good ideas that are valuable will bubble up And you know what? All those other issues can very often be resolved if you've got a good idea that's worth pursuing. I think that it's really important to track attitudes and opinions and really make that objective intelligence the foundation of your strategic planning. I think that, you know, actually having some objective intelligence um, that's not, not I reckon, or even an anecdote that may be true but it may not be necessarily reflective of um, most people's experience. I'll just finally make the, the following observations. That is, the cost to market is really reducing. Digital channels in terms of marketing and communication is much less expensive than mass media and is much more accountable. And the other thing I would say is that the opportunity to actually start to incorporate things like modelling into your marketing and product mix is becoming more possible than ever before because there are many more software as a service providers who are delivering those sorts of solutions. So the opportunity to be uh, much more um, transformational in terms of your digital um, communication and your, your, the digitisation of your business is there for the taking. Kevin, um we could talk all day on that. Thank you. Thank you very much for your valuable time and, and more importantly, your insights, uh, particularly in our world of the not-for-profit sector. And uh, thanks again uh, for your time. So That's thanks, my Ed. pleasure, Pat. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks also to Derek Tan and his team at Generator, our marketing communication consultants, for producing this podcast. And thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed our fourth podcast, Join us again soon when we talk to another industry leader about the issues that shape our communities. Until next time, I'm Patrick Hurd and this is Seen and Heard.